Hebrews highlights. Wrapping up the book of Hebrews, for me, has been just an amazing growth period and just a reconfirmation of the narrow path that we're all in. So I'd like to just spend a little time today wrapping up, looking at the highlights in the book of Hebrews. Let's start with a few things that we've come to discover through this journey of the book of Hebrews. That the author, I don't think, and I quite, if we look and see in chapter 2, verse 3, that the author is not Paul. Yet we know that the author is from Paul's inner circle. Personally, after this journey through the book of Hebrews, I'm leaning very strongly to Apollos. I'm leaning very strongly to the author being Apollos. Of course, the language of the book of Hebrews comes to us in the Greek. I don't believe in a Hebrew or an Aramaic primacy when it comes to the book of Hebrews. I really do believe that it was written in the Greek and pulled from the Septuagint. And it's one of the most eloquently written Greek texts in the whole of the New Testament, of course, its basis is not the Masoretic text, but the Septuagint. The location, we understand that this was written to a group of believers in or around Judea. They were not in Jerusalem, but they were in or around Judea. And it was sometime before, just prior to the destruction of the temple, most probably around 65 in the Common Era, because um, that's when the major Roman persecutions took place, and they weren't mentioned in the text. So it's just prior to 65 in the Common Era, I believe, is when this was dated and written. The audience, if we look in chapter 2, verse 3, they, like the author, they were second-generation Hebrew believers, with many converts coming from the Aaronic Levitical priesthood that were in their midst. You can see that when you read the book of Marseille, Shalachim, the book of Acts. If we take this book and we want to look at it very simply, what is the message succinctly of this book? Yahushua died for our sins, not so that we wouldn't have to keep the commandments like Sabbath, the dietary commandments, and the feasts of Yahuwah. He's our eternal sacrifice. He is our eternal priesthood. And he is our temple and has made us a living temple so that now we are to live a life of sacrifices. Reconciliation to Yahuwah was accomplished by these three things. Sacrifice, priesthood, and temple. Reconciliation to Yahuwah is never and was never by keeping the Sabbath, never by keeping the dietary requirements, and never by keeping the feasts. They are not done away with. What we see is a transference of these three things because we have reconciliation. Now we have the transference of sacrifice, priesthood, and temple. And that is truly the message of the Malkitzedic order. But before I start highlighting Hebrews, remember, it was Stephen Langton, 1150 to 1228, 
the one-time Archbishop of Canterbury that provided the still current division of the Bible into chapters and verses. So though I may be going through this in chapters and verses, it wasn't until Stephen Lunkton came along that anybody even thought that way. And I need not remind you that the chapters and verses are not inspired, and at times they are not very inspiring, especially the woebegone division of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, from Hebrews chapter 11. Moshiach being the apogee of faith, the quintessence of true forward-looking faith. So, in chapter 1, let's look at chapter 1 with an overview. My hope to you all and for you all is that if I was to come and pick up your scriptures and I was to turn to the book of Hebrews in whatever version that you have been studying out, my hope is that I would see lots and lots of pencil marks. That would be my hope. And that would be something that I would hope that you could hand down to your next generation. Your scriptures that are well used with lots of pencil marks, maybe pen, but then we're always growing and we're always developing, aren't we? <laughs> so I don't like whiteout, so I like to use pencil. <laughs> if we go to chapter 1, we're going to see that really chapter 1 is about dismantling the first of the three pillars of Judaism, dismantling angels. That's what chapter 1 is about. The three pillars of Judaism, of course, being angels, Moshe, and the Levitical priesthood. Our author dives right in in chapter 1 and begins to dismantle that first pillar, and he addresses angels. It's about angelology. The son's superiority over the angels is chapter 1. The greatness of the son, he received sevenfold confirmation from the Tanakh. So in chapter 1, you see seven quotations from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to prove the son's what? Superiority over the angels. That really is a great summary for chapter 1. Now, if you were to delve into chapter 2, we come into the mystery in chapter 2 of Yahusha's composition. Now remember, and this is always tough for some, but the scripture defines a human being as somebody whose flesh comes from the dust. So then you ask the question, was Yahusha a human being? Well, according to the Bible or according to, you know, Johns Hopkins University. No, according to the Bible, where did his flesh come from? From the heaven. Did he have flesh? Well, of course, it says that those that deny that he had the flesh and came in flesh are in the spirit of Moshiach Neged, the spirit of anti-Messiah. Yes, Yahusha came in the flesh, but... He was not from humanity's origins, dust. He was the manna from heaven that's rained down upon the people. So we know that he was 100% Elohim, 0% man, cloaked in humanity, yet not from humanity's origin. 
None of this God-man stuff that we all learn in the traditional religious system. His origins, John tells us, Yochanan, the flesh that came down from heaven. So there's four reasons for Yahusha's descent and death in chapter 2. Number one, in verse 10 of chapter 2, to bring many sons to glory. Number two, to overcome Satan in verse 14. In verse 15, to free us from fear and slavery. And in verse 16, he aids us and assists us all. That's mankind. So we find that the author, this second generation believer, was well versed in the Septuagint. It was a person who didn't witness Yahusha firsthand. So how can it be Paul? And how can it be any of the 12 disciples? Because the author testifies that he did not witness Yahushua firsthand. So it cannot be Paul, and it cannot be any of the 12 disciples. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Master himself and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? meaning the author didn't hear Yahushua firsthand. Paul heard Yahushua firsthand on the road to Damascus, did he not? So we don't have to look into thousands of years of highbrow theology. We have the word of Yahweh. We are free from men's doctrines and dogmas because the word is the word. And that's what I love about the scriptures, that we can really delve. And, you know, that's the difference between us and so many other people out there, is they're afraid to rely on the Scripture. They have to have some men backing things up for them. They have to go with the herd. And if you're out on your own, on a limb, the Scripture, that's, that, they need more security than that. You see, but for me and my house and my testimony that I just shared with you, I know where my strength comes. It comes from the living, breathing word. And that's the only thing. So therefore, I can discard everything else and be fully confident in the word of Yahuwah. That is our testimony. And that's a powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword testimony, isn't it? We know that the author was in Paul's inner circle because he attests to know Timothy Hebrews 13, verse 23, know that our brother Timtaos has been set free, and if he comes shortly, I will see you with him. So this is why so many in the institutionalized church have got hung up wrongly on this verse, thinking, well, it's got to be Paul. Paul's got to be the author, not realizing that Hebrews may be Pauline in character, because of the, the author's familiarity with Paul and his inner circle. But it is certainly not Pauline in composition. It may be Pauline in character, but it is not Pauline in composition. It's glaringly there when you're immersed in the text. So for me, I'm definitely going with Apollos. You cannot prove that it was Apollos. You cannot prove that it was this person or that. I believe the preponderance of evidence to me 
is Apollos, because Apollos was a very important traveling leader in the early assembly. We know that Hebrews was written by a highly educated, scripturally saturated, oratorical mind. Truly, truly. He was extremely familiar with the work of John the Immerser, John the Baptist. John the Immerser's crowning achievement was what? What was his crowning achievement? Transferring the priesthood to Yahusha. That was his crowning achievement. And what is this book all about? That very crowning achievement. And who is that connected to? What does the testimony of Scripture say? Who is the man that was most familiar with the work of John the Baptist, yet was scripturally saturated and familiar with the Alexandrian texts? Who was that person? Was it Paul? Certainly not. Acts chapter 18 verse 24 gives us this testimony. And a certain Yehudi, a certain Jew named Apollos, who was born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, a mighty man in the Ketve HaKodesh, the Holy Scriptures, came to Ephesia. This man was instructed in the Torah and the Halakha, the walk of the Master Yahuwah, being fervent in Ruach, he spoke and taught diligently, look, he spoke and taught diligently the things of Yahuwah, knowing only the mikvah of John the Immerser. So he was scripturally saturated, came from Alexandria, he was immersed in the Septuagint language, and he was familiar with what? The ministry of John the Immerser. And that ministry was all about the transference as the legitimate high priest of the Levitical order to the Malkitzedic order when he said that Yahusha, Yahusha said to him, it is thus fitting to fulfill all righteousness that the king would go into the water and thus come up fulfilling all righteousness. He would go into the water as a Malki and come up fulfilling all Zadokah, Malki Zadik. This is amazing. We talk about, talked about that, excuse me, in the Malki Zadik connection. So let's turn to chapter 3. We find now in chapter 3 the dismantling of the second pillar of Judaism. What's the second pillar of Judaism? Moshe Rabbeinu. Hebrews 3.2. Who was faithful in him that appointed him as also Moshe was faithful in all his bait, all his house. So Moshe was the servant in the house of Israel. But Messiah, he built the house and his owner he is son and he is heir. Yahushua was over the house whose house you and I are because we're what? Galatians 6.16, we are the Israel or the house of Eloah. That's what we are. And he's over this house. What we find in chapter 3, he uses five disparities between the Levitical and the Malkitzedic our author communicates the Malkitzedic superiority using these five disparities. Number one, Yahusha, he has a better position. Number two, Yahusha, he is a better priest. Number three, what we have today is based upon a better covenant. 
And number four, it's based upon a better sanctuary. And number five, it's based upon a better sacrifice. So chapter three is all about what? If you were to summarize chapter three, it's all about access. Chapter three is all about access. Israel had limited access through the servant of the house. Whereas we have greater access and special privilege through the owner, son, and heir of the house. It's access. And this is the thing that I find and have come across more and more with the pushback in the Messianic movement, in the Hebrews, uh, Hebrew root movement, that people do not like about this Malkitzedic ministry and this Malkitzedic message is what? Many of these ministries are top down. Top-down ministries, limiting your access. You have got to go through the hierarchy to get the understanding. That's what it was like with the, with the Levitical priesthood, right? It was a top-down ministration. The Malkitzedic is what? Bottoms up. As we say in England to our friends, bottoms up. And what I would like to say to the phony Facebook ministers is, bottoms up. I mean, really, it depends, you know. So bottoms up. Chapter 4. Let's go on to chapter (laughs) 4. Moving quickly, swiftly. Chapter 4. How can you summarize chapter 4? It's the weighty matter, keeping Shabbat, observing the feasts, and like I said, keeping the dietary requirements and so on and so forth have nothing to do with atonement for sin. Yahusha did not end these commandments. And chapter 4, verse 9 specifically says thus, There remains, therefore, a Shabbat-keeping duty. The Greek word there is sabbatismos. There remains a Shabbat-guarding piety to the people of Elohim. And this is the only time in the New Testament where sabbatismos, the Greek word sabbatismos, is used. It's derived from sabbatizo, which means to keep Sabbath in the Septuagint, to keep Sabbath. The normal word for rest, passive, that the institutionalized church would like you to think, oh, it's passive. No, the normal word for rest, which is passive, is a different Greek word, and it's called katapousis. And as we discovered as we went through this, katapousis is deliberately absent from the text, proving without a shadow of a doubt that Shabbat keeping is still very much a part of the believer's observant lifestyle today. 
Now marry this linguistic textual proof with the context, which remember the context of whatever the quotations are in the Tanakh, the context of those quotations, when they're used in the book of Hebrews, the context is carried forth into the narrative. So we find in Hebrews chapter 4, the context of Psalm 95, which is a Sabbath liturgical psalm, that is carried forward to tell you that this is not passive, but this is called Shabbat keeping piety. This is an active observance that is supposed to be a part of the believer's life. Even in early Christian literature, Sabbatismos is used not to refer to the Sabbath day, but to refer to Sabbath observance. It's a big difference. Sabbath celebration. It's active. It is not passive. In fact, D.L. Moody, Wade and Wanting, on pages 47 and 48, wrote this. We find, the Sabbath was binding, binding in Eden. And it has been in force ever since. This fourth commandment begins with the word, remember showing that Sabbath already existed when God wrote the law on the tablets of stone at Sinai. How can men claim that this one commandment has been done away with when they will admit that the other nine are still binding? That's D.L. Moody, Wade and Wanting, Fleming H. Revel Co., New York, pages 47 and 48. You see? You just have to dig a little. So in chapter 4, verse 14, our author starts dismantling the third pillar of Judaism, of course, the Levitical priesthood, by addressing the supremacy of the Malkitzedic priesthood. And now we jump into chapter 5, and we find chapter 5 is the contrast between the milk and the meat. Get on the milk and get off the teat. That's what I like to say and get delve, and I'm not going to do any theatrics for that one because we'll really get in trouble, right? <laughs> Sorry. Keep it kosher. Keep it kosher. But really, when we dig... <laughs> Gets me going over there in the corner. But we really do, when we look into it, we understand that the institutionalized church really does subsist on the most part on milk, does it not? It's teaching the elementary Christian ethics with a worldly spirit of syncretism. It's Christian ethics with a worldly spirit of syncretism, and it's accepted as part of Western society as a whole. And we find that those adherents that want to just subsist on the milk, then the author says that they must be treated as what? Spiritual infants because they're unable to assimilate the spiritual meat because of the anchor in their life of carnality that they just keep dragging through their life. It's the carnality in their life that is, keeps them anchored to the milk and they're unable to get free of that anchor and be launched into the meat. And that's the meat, of course, is the, the Sabbath, the feast, the dietary requirements, and moving into the Malkitzedic, away from the carnal commandments of what? Religion. It really is talking about moving forth and burying that flesh in chapter 5. 
You must leave the babyhood. You have to leave the milk and press on to meat and maturity. And the danger that we find from our author to the audience is if they didn't make that move into the meat, then they would make inevitably an irreversible decision that would permanently keep them on the milk. And that's what you find. People make these irreversible decisions that they're not willing to press on. I've seen so many people being given the message, whether it's been the Malkit Zedek or the message of Torah, and then make decisions and not move forward with the revelation or a prophetic word that was given to them or a relative that shared the message with them. Maybe they pushed in and then they drew back. Once they make that decision, it becomes irreversible and they can never get back to where they were and then they're on the milk and you visit them in 20, 30, 40 years' time. They're still just where they were and you've grown exponentially. How come? They made an irreversible decision and ultimately it will end in a physical death. It's terrifying. It really is. So be blessed, be courageous, and press press in is the message of chapter 5. Chapter 6 we look at in verse 4. For it is impossible, this of course is the infamous verse, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh and have tasted the tov, the good word of Yahuwah, and the powers of the olam haba, and they fall away to renew them again to repentance, teshuvah, seeing they crucify by themselves the son of Yahuwah again, and put him to an open shame. And you may remember, I had a lot of people contact me about this, once we receive these five spiritual privileges, There is something that is impossible for those who've experienced these five privileges to do if they fall away, is to renew them again to repentance. So what are those five spiritual privileges? Number one, a once and for all enlightenment. That's talking about a one-time regeneration, the moment that you and I came into the faith. Have we experienced that? There you go. Number two, they have tasted their heavenly gift. This means that we partook of Mashiach, and later that would mean that we then partake of the Passover with his body and his blood. Have you done that? Well, there's two of the spiritual privileges. The third spiritual privilege, partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh. Have you truly participated, been convicted and felt the unction of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, there's three of the spiritual privileges. Four, the fourth one, tasted the good word of Yahuwah. Have you tasted the spoken word? Have you testified and tasted the spoken word in your life? Have you heard special utterances, either by other people speaking to you or the utterance of the spoken word and conviction in your life? Well, if you have, there's four of the spiritual privileges you've experienced. And the fifth spiritual privilege, tasted the powers of the age to come. Have you tasted the power of the messianic kingdom? Have you tasted that? 
Well, if you've done and tasted these five spiritual privileges, that means that if you fall away, it is impossible to renew you again. You're in. We're committed. There is no going back. So, you give it everything you've got. You give it. There's nothing. There is nothing in this world. If you've tasted the five, and I've tasted the five, and I look out and many of you are nodding, you've tasted the five, then we're in. We do not look back. We have set our hand to the plow to hell, and people get upset when I say this, but to hell with them all, we keep on going. That's not a bad word. It's a garbage dump south of the gates in Jerusalem where they burnt the garbage, okay? You know, in the Christian church, we were taught, ooh, spooky. No, it, it's not a bad thing. Gehenna, you know, it's the place where they, you know, and, and Yahusha used that as a teaching example. That's where we take out the trash and we burn it. And we need to be taking out a bit more trash and burning it too, right? In our lives. So, amazing. Now let's look at chapter 7. We can really, the overview of chapter 7 can be done succinctly in 10 simple points. Chapter 7. Number one, Yahusha represents all. His priesthood is universal in scope, whereas Aaron represented Israel and was limited and national in scope. Think about that. The first point of 10 in chapter 7. Yahusha represents all of us. There is neither male or female, slave or free, Greek, Jew, Gentile. You are all what? Echad, one in Messiah. Yahusha represents all of us. His priesthood, therefore, is universal in scope, whereas Aaron represented Israel, was limited and national in scope. And this is where I kind of find the rub with those that are so into the undivided Torah, 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 and the Levitical priesthood. It's really about what? It's really tied to the Zionist national agenda. You look at it. It always is. All these people that are super hyper-messianic. Oh, Torah, Torah. Torah to the tribes, man. They're doing away with the Torah. If you look, they are always, 100% of the time, tied into Zio nationalism, which they drug in from the church. All the time, every single time. They've got all of the Jewish paraphernalia, They've got all of that, and it's always tied into support of the Zionist state. Always. 100% of the time, it's tied into that agenda. Because that is the fruit. Yahusha is what? Universal in scope. The Levitical and Aaronic was limited and national in scope, and that's the fruit it will bear. Zio nationalism. Tie a string around it and you will always find it is Zio nationalism. And that is not for the people of Yahuwah. 
It's not. And that's so hard when you were brought up in Christian Zionism and you come into the Hebrew roots and you drag that in, not realizing the difference between biblical Zionism and the Zionism of Theodore Herzl and the occult New World Order. Very different. Number two of the second points in chapter 7, Aaron was only a priest, but Yahushua? King and priest. Number three, the Aaronic priesthood dealt with sin and judgment. Yahushua's priesthood is characterized by righteousness and peace. And this is the thread that you find with the Zio nationalist agenda is what? There's always sin and judgment. Very judgmental. Oh, you're in sin, brother. Oh, you're in sin. You're, 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 the way you're interpreting, oh, man, he's not even a brother. Very judgmental, you find, with the Levitical hierarchy when they're tied into the Zio-nationalism. It goes par for the course. Number four, Yahushua didn't inherit or pass on his priesthood, whereas Aaron did. And we know that there were, what, about 83 high priests from Aaron all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70. Number five, Aaron's priesthood is tribal, thus it's limited. Yahushua's priesthood is trans-tribal. It's all-encompassing in scope, meaning it doesn't belong to any one tribe, but it belongs to the all, the all, the all whosoever, the children of El Elyon, Most High. And that, again, is the thrust that I see, is the real distinction is between the tribal Zio-nationalists and what? The trans-tribal whosoever's. And you always tie those that are propagating the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. They are Zionists, tribalists, nationalists, because that is the only way the Levitical hierarchy can exist. Whereas Yahushua does not exist in that realm and his people do not exist in that realm. We are trans-tribal, transnational, and universal in scope. It's bigger, it's better, and it's Joseph's coat of many colors. And it is for all and all today. But if they can lock you down in tribal nationalism, Zio-nationalism, then you are limited in scope. And that is when you look at these websites and you look at these ministries that are coming against this teaching, you'll always find that they are Zionists. Every time. Every time. Aaron's priesthood, number six, kept the people under guard in a state of infancy, whereas Yahushua, through the Malkitzedek, brings us into maturity. And many people ask me why I don't get involved in many of these um, squabbles and bickers online. There's a lot of bickering and squabbling going online, and I, I just keep out of it. Because quite honestly, the people that do it, they are immature. And these are apparent ministers. And my question is... How do you have time for that? You should be in the Word. That's mature. I don't have time. I'm in the Word. That's maturity. Immaturity is that you've got to go out and try and cause fights and squabbles and defend yourself. Hey, I'll leave it to it. I'd rather be in the Word because that is where the meat is, right? Yeah. That's where it's at. You see, it's all part of our testimony. They shall know us by our fruit. 
Number seven, the ministry of Yahushua brings blessings, whereas Aaron's ministry brought forth that which was weak and unprofitable. Number eight, the Aaronic priesthood was based upon the book of the law, which was administered by a dying priesthood and a dying man. It was limited. Yahushua's priesthood is based upon covenant Torah and an endless resurrected life. Number nine, the Malkit Zedek is based upon the sinless priest, whereas the Aaronic is based upon the sinful priest. And finally, number 10, we find the language of the apocalypse in chapter 7. It's all about the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth that exercises world dominion from the heavenly throne over the Zio National New World Order religionists. That's really it. And that's what I see that we are coming up against, is this New World Order religious Zionism. Preparing for the final temple and the sacrifices plays right into the hands of the New World Order. Let's look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13. And when he said, a new priesthood, he has made the first obsolete But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And it can't be stated any clearer in chapter 8. The priesthoods and covenants which were connected to the book of the law are what? Obsolete. The Greek word means to advance in age, to grow old, to rot or become decaying. It's a word picture that supports the old, as in old covenant and old priesthood. Even Jeremiah insisted that Israel and Judah had what? They had broken the covenant. They had broken the covenant. And that for this reason, there was need for an entirely new covenant based upon better promises. So in chapter 8, we even find that it's talking about something that the prophets had confirmed earlier. The prophets confirmed what? The abolishment of the Levitical priesthood. Turn with me to Jeremiah 33 verse 17 because this one again, I like to go to the sheep verses and not just lap up the milk, but actually dissect the sheep itself and get into the meat. But here's a sheep verse that those Zio-religionists will go to. Jeremiah 33, verse 17. And again, remember I said the prophets confirm the abolishment of the Levitical priesthood. And they'll go to this sheep verse. For this, says Yahuwah, David shall never lack an heir to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Question is, where is he then? Is he there now? So, is this verse, is this verse... uh, In context, where is he then, right? He's not there, so he has lack sitting on the throne, correct? Okay. For this says Yahuwah, David shall never lack an heir to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the Kohanim, the priests, the Levites lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle grain offerings and to do sacrifices continually. Well, where are they then? They're not there. Haven't been for over 2,000 years. 
Verse 19, and the word of Yahuwah came to Jeremiah saying, this says Yahuwah, if you can break my covenant, here's the conditional clause, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, and that there should not be day and night in their timings, then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he should not have a son to rule upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my servants. Again, trans-tribal Zios get stuck on this. And most of these, tri- these um, tribal Zionists, what are, they, what are they stuck on? The Hillel calendar and the rabbinic interpretations of when a day begins or doesn't begin, and they're stuck on that, which is connected to what? The day and the night and whatnot. But people forget the conditional context of the covenant that has already been enforced regarding this verse. Let's look at the conditional context in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 5. You have to thread the needle which means that you can't be messing around on Facebook. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to be in the meat, you see? That's the difference. As I promised to David my father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel, but, but if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other Elohim and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land. Did you catch it? But if, then I. What is that? That's a condition. That's a condition. But if, then I. This is a conditional covenant that Israel and Judah failed to walk in. This is not like a covenant of promise, and it is not in effect today. That is why there hasn't been a king sitting on the throne in Israel continually. And that is why there hasn't been Levitical priests offering sacrifices continually because Yahuwah is not a liar. This is a conditional covenant that is broken, done, abolished, and rotted out. Come on, read the word. But their theology is connected to Zio religion and the New World Order. And as time presses on, 2016, 2017, if we get there, you're going to see how more dangerous this is. People will contact us and say, this message of the Malkitzedic priesthood changed my life. I was about to deny Messiah, convert to Judaism, and get into the whole religious Zionism. And you know what the answer of the people that are pushing that doctrine? Oh, well, you know, I'm like, what you're teaching with this Levitical hierarchy has led hundreds of people to deny Messiah. Hundreds through the Karite movement, through the barley sniffing, through all of that. It has. Hundreds. 
Yet when you speak of the Melchizedek, it's the breaks on people fall in repentance and the elevation of Yahusha. Tie a thread around it. And, and we should be in fear and peril? No, you should be in fear and peril if you're teaching something that is getting people so hyped up into everything Jewish and Torah that they end up denying Messiah, getting into religious Zionism and Judaism. That is scary. That is scary, and that's the fruit. Why are you dressing up like a Jew? A religious Jew. Why do, why do you do that? Why do you, wear, why do you wear a kippah? Why do you wear tassels? Because if you want to follow the commandment, I have no problem with that. But you do understand that the, the, the seat seat, the way that they're, 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 they're tied... That is Talmudic tradition. If you were to look and do the research, when it says, you will what? Make thread tassels on the four corners of your garment. They found in tombs that the four corners, they would wear a one-piece garment and it would have threaded blue round the one corner, the second corner, the third corner, and the fourth corner. If you want to do it what the scripture says, do it. But don't try and palm off something as biblical when it is Jewish Talmudic tradition. And people will say, oh, you know, the tallit, that's biblical. No, it's not. A tallit is not biblical. There's nothing wrong if you want to wear a tallit, but it's not scriptural. It's Jewish tradition. Why are you doing that if you're a scripturalist? I used to do it, but I didn't know any better. I'm not saying these things are bad, but when you say that they are scriptural and that you judge other people because they don't want to do those traditions, that is the problem. That is Zio religion, which leads people into error and deception. It's no different than if I were to tell you that we should start wearing a fish hat because the Pope does. Right? They gone it. They gone it. I love it. So the point is, Hebrews chapter 8 clearly and succinctly tells you the Levitical priesthood is abolished confirmed by Jeremiah 33, verse 17, and the context of 1 Kings 9, verse 5. I don't care what you wear. I really don't. But don't make your opinion my burden, because that is religiosity. That's all I'm saying. You can dress up like whatever you want, but don't tell me that it's the commandments of Yahweh when it is Talmudic Jewish tradition. If you want to get right with Yahweh, it's not about cleaning the outside of the cup. It's about cleaning the inside of the cup. Otherwise, you're nothing more than a bunch of Pharisees extending the hems of your garments and you are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones the greater work is the inner struggle 
where we try to crush the flesh. And we what? Love one another. Love one another as he loved us. That should be the fruit of our testimony. Not being combative and slandering people and using other people's names to try and elevate yourself. I get cheeky, but you'll notice I do not use the names of other ministers when I'm teaching. Because what we do here is what? We don't try to step on people, but we try to expose what? The New World Order, the Illuminati, and the rabbinical Jewish agenda. And also the institutionalized churches agenda and the agenda of the secularists and the New World Order, which is governmental, political, financial, and religious. Whilst at all times elevating the scripture and the living word. That is what this ministry is about. And that is what draws people. I believe. I believe. So we can see the conditional clause, Jeremiah 33, 17, with the conditional clause of 1 Kings 9, verse 5. All covenant authority in chapter 8 of monarchy and priesthood were transferred to the son of Yahweh. And people twist that verse in Jeremiah 33, verse 17, to mean a without end Davidic or Levitical dynasty. And the question I always ask is, well, where, where is it then? It's not there. Even in Yahusha's time, there was no king of Israel, let alone from the line of David. And there hadn't been one since Zedekiah and the Babylonian captivity of about 587. So let's go now to chapter 9. And we find in chapter 9, in verse 15, a literal translation that was used without the King Jimmy grammar that's added. Remember in the Greek, there is no grammar. You have to add the grammar. And that really means you're adding what? Your opinion to the text. If you strip out the grammar in the Greek, you can clear up about 99% of any New Testament translation problems. You don't even have to consult the Hebrew or the Aramaic. 99% of the problems that you find with translation issues in the New Testament, it's because of the grammar that has been added. So if you strip out the grammar, then you can bring in the structure of the verse and you get rid of all of your problems. Here's a case in point right here. No grammar on Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And because of this, a new covenant, diatheke, he is mediator, that death, having come for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Of course, diatheke, those transgressions came at Exodus 32 with the golden calf because they were unfaithful to the book of the covenant. Those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. What's that inheritance? Ephesians 2.12, the covenants of promise are our inheritance. Verse 16, for where a covenant is, diatheke, of course this is addressing the covenant of Genesis 15, the covenant between the pieces. Where a covenant is, diatheke, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. And this is the Greek word diathemony, 
Someone had to die, the author is telling us. Somebody had to die if the Genesis 15 covenant was broken because of the flaying open of the pieces. For the making of this covenant, the Greek word that's used is feres, feres, and it means to carry a burden, meaning the one that would make the covenant would have to carry the burden of the generations that broke it before. What is the burden? He'd have to pay the death penalty position of Genesis 15. Yahusha bears the burden and carries the punishment of those that violated the book of the covenant. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 9. For a covenant, diatheke, over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. Diathemony. The return, it's talking about the return to the book of the covenant living could only happen after Yahushua died and paid the death penalty position of Genesis 15. No matter what, no matter what, it could not function when the covenant victim lived. We could never live in the book of the covenant reality when the covenant victim still lived, could we? No. It says that him who was born under the law walked according to the law until he died and was able to transfer us out of the mediation of the schoolmaster into what? The new covenant, which is the new Malkitzedic covenant for us. Yahushua was the covenant victim, a victim of Israel's unfaithfulness and a victim of my unfaithfulness. And this goes back to me meeting him when I was 24 years old. All of this study, all of this, it takes me full circle. That's why I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt. This doesn't lead me to somebody in Israel. This doesn't lead me to some rabbi, fake rabbi. This doesn't leave me lead me to some Levitical hierarchy. This leads me back to my first love. I am utterly convinced that we are on the narrow path that leads to life. I am utterly convinced. I would not stand up here and teach this message. My life has been changed and I bear the fruit and I hope that you can see it. And I am a witness and a testifier to the resurrection of Yahushua HaMashiach in my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life, in your lives. I see the fruit. And we've come out of institutionalized lawlessness. But we are not going to run headlong into Torah, Zionism, destruction, dressing up like Jews and playing a bunch of rabbinical nonsense. That's not the way, the truth and the light. It's not. The narrow path is covenant Torah following the Zedek high priest Yahushua. And that's why we seek after his name. We seek after the Father's name. We seek after his times, his seasons, his calendaration. We understand that we're to walk in holy, righteous living. But we're not going to dress up and play theatrics and then judge other people because they don't dress up the way that we do. That's cray-cray.
Chapter 10. From Greek to Mother Goose, right, yeah. I love verse 9 in chapter 10. Then he said, Behold, I come to do your will, O Yahweh. He abolishes, the Greek word there is anario. He abolishes the first sacrificial system that he may establish the second, that perfect sacrifice. The verb anerio means to get rid of by execution. To get rid of by execution. To do away with, to destroy. To get rid of someone by execution with legal or quasi-legal procedures, like what Caiaphas thrust upon Yahushua. That comes from the Greek-English lexicon. Yahuwah killed the continued viability of the first order of sacrifice by Yahusha's death. So the second order of the Malkitzadik sacrifice can stand. Hebrews 10 verse 26 is very powerful. For if we sin willfully, this means abandoning one's confession and thus transgressing the Torah vertically. We're not talking about horizontal transgression between man and man. 1 John 1.8 If we sin willfully, after that we have received the da'at, the knowledge of the truth. That means once we've come to Brit Milah Haleh, the circumcision of the heart, the born-again experience with Yahushua, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Meaning he's not going to climb back up upon that tree for you and I. But a certain fearful anticipation of mishpat, judgment and fire, which shall devour his enemies. Anyone that rejects Moshe's Torah dies without rachamin under two or three witnesses. Please note, it says, anyone that rejects Moshe's Torah. It doesn't say anyone that rejects Aaron's Torah, does it? Because Abraham didn't know Aaron's Torah, yet he kept the Torah, right? Isaac and Jacob, they didn't know Aaron's Torah. They'd never met a Levitical priest, yet they did the Torah. Galatians tells us we're to do the walk of Abraham. Not the walk of Aaron, but the walk of Abraham. We are Abraham's Zerah, seed. We do covenant Torah, and we do not reject covenant Torah. That's the distinction we serve an Elohim of distinctions. That is Tamei, that is Tahor. Right? We serve an Elohim of distinctions. That is unclean, that is clean. That is holy, that is profane. This is Sabbath, that is the common day. This is a Moed, this is not. We serve an Elohim of distinctions. That is his nature. This is a 
Torah of distinctions. If you make no distinction, you will run headlong into destruction. Either lawlessness or you will become a Zio Torah terrorist. And that's it. Zio Torah terrorists I abhor. Covenant Torah righteousness is kadosh and holy and just. And that's the life for you and I. The walls are pressing in. The walls are pressing in. We find in verse 28, anyone who rejects Moshe's Torah dies without rachamin, mercy, under two or three witnesses. We've got to be careful of the not inspired version. Because the Greek word here is anatheo, anatheo. It means rejects, means ongoing. And the Greek word for dies is apothenesco. It means about to die, ongoing. You've got to be careful of the NIV and the New American Standard because they put this in the past. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got to do with those Jews back there. Anyone that rejected died. No, no. It's anyone that rejects today dies today in this life. It will be shortened. You'll get eaten up by FEMA and Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. Those, the, young, the young people, they love Bernie. Oh, my goodness. Like all these like 14 to 22. Bernie, they think, I mean, he's, I mean, he's an old codger. I think that he, he actually was part of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. He's a commie. As we'd say in England, no, I can't say it. Can you say it? Okay, honey. <laughs> oh, yeah, did he? Bernie went to the Vatican? See? Next stop will be the Anatonia Fortress, the Temple Mount in the state of Israel with the Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi? Son of Gomer? Son of Japheth? Meaning not Shem? Not Shemites, but Japhethites? Meaning from the Khazaria region, the Turks that converted in the 6th century? You can't teach truth. You have to propagate lies. No. No. I'm not buying into the religious Zionism. And that is what causes me trouble. Trouble, trouble, toiling, trouble. Sorry, sorry, let's get... Where was I? Crying out loud. Get back on track. Verse 29. I was admonishing you to donate your NIVs and your New American Standards to the next homeless person that you find outside of your local coffee shop. That's what I was doing. 
I was admonishing you to do donate The question is, how does the sun get trampled underfoot? How does the sun get trampled underfoot? Hebrews 10.26, you kick out the Malkitzedic altar, you know that altar outside of the gate, and the son of Yahuwah falls to the ground as you count the Malkitzedic book of the covenant, a common thing, trampling the sun underfoot. You choose Judaism dressed up as a lamb, complete with Levitical altars that can't hold up the sacrifice of the son, causing him to fall under your foot. The Levitical altars cannot hold up the son's sacrifice. They can't. If you follow after those altars, the son comes tumbling down and you trample his blood underfoot. You choose the altar and that will choose your destiny. Let's cut out the rubbish, all the back and forth. Choose your altar and that will choose your destiny. Simple as that, simple as that, and as sobering and terrifying as that. By returning to the Levitical altars, they caused the sun to fall underfoot, thus yoking themselves with the generation of the unpardonable sin our audience did. They, that generation that blasphemed the Ruach HaKodesh, the generation that was making the claim that Yahusha was not the Messiah on the basis of him being demon-possessed. And how many people in the Messianic movement, how many people have gone over and denied Yahusha? How many? Hundreds. And how many people who were about to step off of that cliff have given their testimony that the message of the Malkitzedic returned them back to their first love. By your fruit, you shall know them. It's the simple things. It's the simple things that are glaring in truth. Glaring in truth. That generation that our author spoke to would face physical judgment and death. As I believe, and I have said before, I believe that this generation will too. We are, in fact, just 40 years from the Iranian Revolution. And there's many people that are now rejecting the Book of the Covenant message. And they're returning to Judaism. Oh yeah, it's dressed up as a lamb. But they're still returning to Judaism dressed up as a lamb. And they will then face a physical judgment because it will be all about the altar. We find now in chapter 11 the four important principles, finishing up here, the four important principles. Number one, because the Old Testament saints exercised faith, if we fail then to exercise faith, we will depart from those very Old Testament saints. And herein lies the reality of the institutionalized church. They don't have the faith to believe in the literal Torah covenant that the Old Testament saints walked in. So they do away with the Torah because it reminds them of what? Their lack of faith. Because they don't have the faith of Abraham. They don't have the faith of Isaac. So instead of that reminding them of their lack of faith, they do away with the Torah and they live in a false faith. 
Number two, our author in verse 35 of chapter 11, he encourages us to exercise patient endurance. That same patient endurance that the Old Testament saints exercise. So, like them, we can be victorious in battle. Patient endurance is the key to gaining victory in the battles of our lives. We've got to be patient with ourselves and with others and press on to the victory. And the fourth thing, of course, that key word in chapter 11 is faith. It's used 24 times. And remember in chapter 11, remember the patriarchs. Their faith, their faith enabled their loved ones to activate their faith, even if at first they laughed it off. So many people, you share the Torah, the message of the return, and they laugh at you, right? But in the midst of that, stand strong. Your faith, by you standing in faith, it could enable them to activate their faith later on. Sarah laughed. But because Abraham stood firm in his faith, and he testified to his faith when she saw the destruction of Sodom. Later on, she activated her faith and she brought forth Zerah seed. Isaac, did she not? Isn't that amazing? Chapter 12. Therefore, seeing that we also are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses. And the Greek word there is nephos. Nephos means a massive big pile, a massive pile of clouds that surround us. Not a single nepheli, not a single cloud, but we have a massive pile of cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Israelite witnesses. And then we find and finish up in chapter 13. We come to that famous verse, whereas Yahushua is the same yesterday, today, and Tomorrow, forever. Yahushua, we discovered, is not unchangeable in his person. He is not unchangeable in his activities with men. And my favorite, he is not unchangeable in his order. His order changes. His activities with men, they change and his person, that changed too. Before the incarnation, he was with a lower. At the incarnation, his person changed. He put on flesh. And after the resurrection, his person changed again. Incorruption, corruption, excuse me, put on incorruption. His person changes. His activities with men changed. Some men were led to the lion's death. Other men were saved. Some men were tortured. And his priesthood changed. From the Aaronic to the Malkitzedic. We have to examine the changes. Because we serve a living, breathing Elohim. I love those anthropomorphisms through scripture. He has hands, he has eyes, he can see his feet. 
the anthropomorphisms demonstrating throughout Scripture that we do not have a dead stone idol. We have a living, breathing Elohim. That's why the Scripture drips with anthropomorphisms. Grow up, people that don't want to acknowledge the changing, breathing word of Yahuwah. It's not stagnant. You cannot be stagnant because your stagnation will lead to your destruction. I want to finish up and close right now with the historical response that our audience gave to the author. The historical response that the audience gave to our author because I believe it does have future ramifications. Because the historian Josephus, Hegesippus, and Eusebius, all three of them recorded the response of our audience to our author. When they received this letter, they read it and they obeyed this letter. They made their break from the Levitical hierarchy once and for all. Within a two-year period of the time that this letter was written, the first Jewish revolt broke out in 66 to 67 of the Common Era. There were tens of thousands of believers, tens of thousands of believers in Yahusha by that time. There were 20,000 believers in Yahusha in Jerusalem at that time. Can you believe that? 20,000 in Jerusalem alone, tens of thousands that were following Yahusha and the Malkitzedic priesthood between 66 and 67 of the Common Era. This is testified by three historians, Josephus, Hegesippus, and Eusebius. That's amazing to me. The proclamation of truth spread to all these people. And they heeded the call of the author and they fled across the Jordan River and they went up to the city of Pella. They went up to the city of Pella. They crossed the Jordan and they went up to the city of Pella on the eastern side of the Jordan, south of the Sea of Galilee. Now Pella, of course, was one of the ten Greek cities of the Decapolis. The Decapolis. And there they waited in Pella For three and a half years or 42 months. Right? They listened. The war ended after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the destruction and abolishment of the sacrificial Levitical system, never to be reinstated again. It ended in 70 of the common era with the death of over one million Jews. Over a million Jews died. But according to Josephus, according to Hegesippus, and according to Eusebius, they testify that not one single Hebrew believer in Yahusha died. Not one perished, according to those three historians. That is the testimony of the saints because of their obedience to the letter of the Hebrews. 
This book has a forbidding but a happy ending, does it not? It's so important for us in this, I believe, final generation to heed the message of the book of Hebrews. So important. So, in pure Hebrew style, I'm going to close with a forbidding yet a happy ending. Stay awake. We have to stay awake and we get fired up for the faith. Don't draw back. Get fired up for the faith. Stay awake and get fired up for the faith because salvation is a work in progress that won't be completed until Yahushua returns and the dead are raised. Between now and then, the lost, they can be saved. And the saved, they can commit apostasy. We're not eternally secure until we're securely in eternity. Finish the race, and in the meantime, run as fast as you can from the Levitical hierarchy. It could be, it could be your very soul. I'll see you at the finish line. Amen? Amen. Praise Yahuwah. Praise Yahuwah. Questions? Comments? Just one. I think that um, is a very good question. That I do not know the answer to right now. I'll just come up and say it. It would take me a little bit of meditation on that verse. What is the great cloud of witnesses? Is that the angelic malachim, angels? Or I believe the author was addressing those that have gone before us. Because we have to understand that once we die and we go into the ground, we are still... Rounded by a cloud of witnesses because Yahweh is not bound by time. But we are in this dimension bound by time. So are they there? Are they resurrected? I mean, it's all, you know, we're so limited in scope. We see, as the Apostle Paul says, through a glass dimly, do we not? So, hallelujah. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. I'm excited. Next week, I have a special little teaching for you that will, um, and then after that, um, an announcement of where we'll be going on our scriptural journey of study. Amen. Stick around, hang out. And uh, Yahweh bless you. Abba, we thank you so much for the word. I truly, truly have experienced this Shabbat, Abba, your word being just living, breathing, and sharper than a two edged sword. I thank you so much, Yahweh, for artists and so much for Tana back there teaching these children. Wow, the testimony that they have. Our children, our grandchildren of your righteousness and of your living, breathing word is a testimony to me. I thank you for my daughter, Hadassah, that just came out last night with the sword and just put asunder those that would question 
your holiness and your righteousness. We thank you, Abba, for this time in your word that's always encouraging, edifying, and Abba, truly comforting. In Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.